Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Journey to the West, and especially the character of Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, is beloved by readers across China, East Asia, and beyond. The story and its characters have been written and rewritten in books, comics, graphic novels, movies, television shows, and video games. In many ways, Journey to the West and Sun Wukong are now archetypes, stories and characters that people refer to and recognize without ever looking at the original source material. But for those interested in reading the original novel, we now have a new translation of Journey to the West translated by Professor Julia Lovell as part of the Penguin Classics series. This new translation takes the original 1592 novel by Wu Chang'an and presents its adventures, humor, satire, and spiritual insights for a modern audience. Julia Lovell is a professor of modern Chinese history and literature at Birkbeck, University of London. Her research primarily focuses on the relationship between culture and modern Chinese nation-building, and on the wide-ranging impacts of modern China's encounters with the world beyond its borders. She is the author of several well-received histories of China, including The Opium War, Drugs, Dreams, and the Making of China, and Maoism, A Global History. She has also translated several works of Chinese literature, including The Real Story of Aq and Lust Caution. Today, Julia and I talk about Journey to the West, its story, its characters, and its history before and after publication of the novel. We'll talk about what motivated this new translation, and we'll end by discussing how Journey to the West and the Monkey King have had an impact on popular culture far beyond China, through Japan, Southeast Asia, and the West. So, Julia, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Perhaps it's best to start by talking by, by asking a very basic question. What is Journey to the West? And why does it deserve this new translation? Journey to the West, Xiyoji, uh, which I've translated and abridged in my new book, Monkey King, is one of the masterworks of pre-20th century Chinese fiction. So one of its tishu. Um, I'll give a very quick plot summary here um, with a few spoilers in there. The main character is a magic monkey king called Sun Wukong. Uh, he has superpowers, like he can travel 108,000 miles in one somersault, or he can transform himself into pretty much anything he likes. He's also unbeatable at kung fu. But he's mischievous and arrogant, and near the start of the book, he gets into a huge fight with the Jade Emperor, the ruler of the Taoist heaven, by guzzling all the immortal peaches, wine, and elixirs, which are normally reserved for the residents of heaven. Eventually, after a huge fight, the Buddha punishes Monkey by imprisoning him under a mountain for 500 years, after which he's eventually released to protect a Chinese monk, Tripitaka, on a dangerous pilgrimage to India to collect Buddhist scriptures. After overcoming multiple monsters, rivers and mountains, uh, Monkey, Tripitaka and two other demons turned pilgrims on the journey, um, Pigsy and Sandy. All four of them reach India, they deliver the sutras back to China, then themselves become immortals in the Buddha's monastery. So among many other things, the novel traces Monkey's journey from troublemaker to virtuous Buddhist. Um, I wanted to take the project on at this particular point in time um, 
because the original novel is such a cornerstone text for the literary cultural imagination across China and East Asia, and also in the Chinese diaspora all over the world, it's full of insight into Chinese culture and society, especially into spiritual beliefs about the afterlife. It's also a very appealing novel in that there's a lot of humour and mischief in the original, thanks largely to the hell-raising monkey and his repartee with uh, his fellow pilgrims, Pigsy, a power-napping pig demon, uh, and Sandy, a glum river monster. I was also driven by the fact that although this novel is such a big influence on Chinese culture and imagination, it still seemed to be relatively little read in the Anglophone world outside specialist circles. So the full translations that we already have are wonderful resources um, by Anthony Yu and by Bill Jenner. But the length and the vast amount of intricate detail the original novel contains can seem intimidating to readers. We have a famous abridgment um, by the remarkable translator and interpreter of Chinese literature, Arthur Whaley. Um, But this was completed some 80 years ago, since when language and literary style have changed a lot. So the challenge I gave myself was, can I study the original in full, assess and select what I feel are the most important elements and translate them in a contemporary idiom that both reflects the deep otherness of the world being described. You know, this is this is a book about a magic Chinese monkey. Um, it's all about imperial China's attitudes to religion and the supernatural. So can I do that? But can I also find an idiom that communicates the book's energy and appeal to Anglophone readers? So maybe let's dig into some of the characters. You you've described some of them very briefly in, in your in your answer just now. But I guess who are the main characters of the book? You know, there's obviously the Monkey King, there's Tripitaka, the monk, um, there's Pigsy, the pig demon, and Sandy, the river demon. Um what are their I guess what are these characters are what are these characters like and what are their interactions with each other throughout throughout the novel? They are um profoundly uh, appealing human characters, I think. So um, none of them uh, are perfect. So there's uh, Monkey King, who is this um, super-powered hero, um, who is also um, sort of proud and mischievous and is sort of brought low by his troublemaking and has to redeem himself through this 14-year pilgrimage full of trials. Um, Pigsy and Sandy are also fallen immortals who have um, committed uh, crimes and sins within heaven, um, and they too have to redeem themselves on the on this on this holy pilgrimage. Um, and a lot of the comedy in the novel comes from the interactions between Monkey and Pigsy and Sandy. So. In no way are they patiently forbearing throughout the 14 years of the quest. You know, rather they're snarking at each other, um, uh, arguing, uh, sometimes joking and joshing. Tripitaka is also a really interesting character um, because he, although he is described as this deeply knowledgeable, pious monk, 
he too is not perfect. Um, and despite having the support of his faith, um, in theory, throughout the novel, throughout the journey, he's noticeably unresourceful, actually, in the face of multiple trials. Um, so he's uh, fearful, uh, easily discouraged. Um, he can't look after himself very well. He needs his disciples, especially Monkey, to uh, protect him from the various dangers and to find him food. So none of these key characters are saints, but rather they're extremely sort of human, flawed individuals, which I think, a fact which I think makes it much easier for the readers to relate to them. Yeah, I would say definitely in, in reading in reading the book, I'm struck by how, I guess, for lack of a better word, whiny Trapitica is throughout throughout the novel. Um, but 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 the humor is not just through the interaction between the characters. Um, one thing that struck me about the novel is is how satirical it is. I think it, it skewers um, Chinese religion, government, bureaucracy, general social attitudes at the time. Um, I guess, what was it like to kind of deal with these satirical elements? And is this a part of the novel that's maybe been neglected over time? Um, yeah, I, I think that's an important element that you've pulled out. I myself would argue, I'm not sure it's been forgotten. The defiant troublemaking of Monkey, um, both at the beginning of the book, when he's sort of building up to this huge conflict um, with Heaven and the Jade Emperor, and later on. So this, this, this troublemaking aspect of his character is such a centerpiece in the book. I think it's hard to ignore or, or write out in adaptations. I'd argue more that the book as a whole is an open text from which many different kinds of audiences have gained different things in different times and places. Um, I think the, the the satire of officialdom and autocratic rulership is one of those elements that can be drawn out. Perhaps, and I'm wondering if this is if some of the is some of the 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 neglect of maybe the the harder and harsher edge of Journey to the West is because of some of these retellings, especially the ones that are more um, child-friendly. Um, and we're going to jump ahead a little bit, maybe, maybe to the popular culture stuff, but obviously Journey of the West is a, is a beloved classic, um, not just in Chinese literature, but also, I think, amongst children in China and outside of China. Um, so I guess I wonder, kind of, kind of, could this, because it could have been a way that you kind of have these different interpretations, that you have those that come in to Journey to the West from the more child-friendly angle, and then those who are reading the book from, I guess, let's say a more a more literary angle, reading it as one of the four classic novels of Chinese literature. Uh, yeah, I, I think the one of the, as I say, one of the appeals of the text is that it is open. Different readers can take multiple messages from it, so. On the most direct level, you can read it as an action-packed situation comedy. The book's hero, Monkey, is setting the tone here, so he's mischief in motion, he's always transforming, always harbouring some ingenious plan or joke, and there's humour in almost 
all his interactions and uh, especially with his junior disciple, the pig demon Pigsy. Um, you can also read it as a superpowered fantasy as well as a farce. So there are endless monsters of all shapes and sizes, usually shape-shifting and transforming, you know, always ready for a kung fu battle. There's a lot in there also about imperial Chinese, Taoist ideas of spirituality and religion. So it's full of Buddhist, Taoist and Confucian motifs. Um, I myself, as I was translating the novel, particularly loved this recurring idea within it that the afterlife will exactly resemble the bureaucratic structures of earthly government. As you said um, a couple of minutes before, it's also you know, very much a satire of political power. Practically all the rulers featured in the book are capricious and corruptible. And there's even food for thought for feminists. So there's the episode when the pilgrims pass through, the pilgrims who are all male, they pass through the country of women and they discover the usual male-female power dynamics are reversed, so they find themselves falling pregnant. They're vulnerable to sexual predation and possible violence from lustful, lustful women. Um, they're uh, forced into marriage by people of the opposite sex, more powerful than, but more, 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 more powerful than them. So there are a bunch of different readings. I, it, it's. Um, Oh, um, Nick, can you hear the phone in the background? Um, a little bit, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. We'll... Should, I, should I just talk over? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you're absolutely right, though, that the novel or the stories within the novel have been very beloved of fantasy movie or animation retellings. Um, and in terms of the sort of child-friendly aspects of the book, Perhaps looking at the recent adaptation history of the story in communist China after 1949 is relevant to our story here. So big theatre and film adaptations in the 1950s and 60s featured mainly the prologue um, and changed the ending of that prologue. So that prologue is when Monkey has his big rebellion against heaven. But in the book, um, Monkey is captured by the Buddha and the Jade Emperor um, and is imprisoned for 500 years until he can redeem himself. But in the PRC adaptations, Monkey's mischief and troublemaking were triumphant. So it changed it to a happy ending for Monkey. Now, this was done for political cultural reasons. It was done to shore up the Chinese communists' own narrative of popular revolution, with Monkey being sort of reimagined as a kind of proto-revolutionary. But in so doing, these adaptations stripped away the strong religious content and the arcs of redemption from the original and made it more about a successfully rebellious naughty monkey. So, you know, I think those adaptations of the 50s and 60s um, arguably have afterlives in how readers imagine the main narrative threads of the book. There's an interesting word you just used earlier on in your answer, um, which actually I think was a, was a parallel I wasn't expecting to make upon reading the novel. Um, you use the word episode, um, episode in the in the Kingdom of Women, um, and in some ways this does feel like it's structured like a like like a TV show in that you have episodes in different locations. Each location brings a a demon of the week um, and a lesson of the week, and it kind of 
there are episodes and arcs, and um, it does feel a lot like a, a, a TV show. I wonder if that's a comparison that that came to your mind as you were, or maybe as you were translating and potentially abridging some of the some of the text. That's a really interesting point. I think to use uh, to, to to travel back in time to think about a pre-modern medium. I think that observation demonstrates the book's roots in older uh, a sort of oral storytelling traditions. So the you, maybe it might be relevant to talk a little bit here about the origins of this particular text. Um, so it, it's the, 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 the hundred chapter version, which I translated from, was first published in 1592. And this sprang from much older oral versions of the story. Um, the story itself is very loosely based on historical events. So Tripitaka was a real Chinese Buddhist monk. Um, he lived between 602 and 664. AD, and he did indeed make a very tough, dangerous journey out of China to India to bring scriptures back to China in the 620s. And even before his death, his um, remarkable life story began being mythologized, and these uh, myths really spiraled in the centuries afterwards uh, to become this sort of fantastic um, uh, set of stories about, about, about the journey and about how Tripitaka accomplished it. So by about the early 13th century, the story had gained the monkey character, um, whose origins might lie in Chinese or even in Hindu mythology. Um, then after the novel was published anonymously in 1592, and over the past five centuries, you know, dozens of adaptations have appeared across print, theatre, film, music, dance, and fine arts, are sort of often picking and choosing the aspects or the episodes of the novel which the uh, adapter found most appealing. And so I think Chinese people probably more often access the novel's stories and characters through these adaptations than through the original 1592 text, which is enormously long and it's written in a pre-modern vernacular that's a long way from contemporary Chinese. Um, perhaps this is, this is a good segue to talk about um, your actual process of translating, abridging um, this very expansive novel. Um, so I guess, in short, you know, what was your philosophy when it came to translating this work regarding scope, language, use of, use of humor, what chapters to include, what to, what to abridge, and, and so on? Well, when, when working on the translation, I was guided by a sense that although this novel is such a, a big influence on Chinese and East Asian culture and imagination, I felt that it was um, rel yeah, relatively little read in the Anglophone world outside specialist circles. Um, so, you know, you're again, sort of huge tribute to the full translations that um, exist, the Anthony Yu and the Bill Jenner, absolutely wonderful uh, resources. But um, in just in, in, in practical terms, it's, it's the length and the intricacy of the novel that can seem 
intimidating uh, to a sort of general interested reader. So the um, uh, the so so I was challenging myself to um, study the original in full, to assess and select what I felt were the most important elements um, and find a hopefully sort of workable, fluent, contemporary idiom that would sort of communicate um, the, the, the energy and the dynamism of the book to Anglophone readers. But I also had a strict word limit. So my editor didn't want me to go beyond 100,000 words. So I knew I'd need to cut a lot. Um, So 100,000 words is about a quarter of the full novel, which in a full translation um, is four fat hardback um, uh, um, uh, volumes. Um, But as we've discussed, you know, luckily the structure of the novel lends itself uh, quite easily to abridgment in that the stories in the main body of the novel are episodic um, and can be read in a standalone way. So you can cut earlier episodes um, and still include later episodes, if you like, without making these later stories incomprehensible. Plus, in the the, 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 the arrangement or the, the, the selection of these episodic stories, there's a certain amount of repetition. So, for example, throughout the novel as a whole, the, the, the pilgrims do meet a lot on separate occasions. They meet a lot of uh, human-eating demons, sort of always plotting to capture and consume the pilgrims. So, you know, to sort of communicate that element of the book, you don't necessarily need to translate every single instance of this occurring. So so very briefly, this was my process. First, I, I read the whole book myself. I noted which episodes I liked best, which episodes um, I thought highlighted the most interesting themes uh, and situations and kind of character arcs in the most compelling way. Um, then both um, Arthur Whaley and Anthony Yu completed their own abridgments. So I, I I drew up a table, I compared their choices against the contents of the whole book, you know, what have they included, what have they left out. Obviously, I was keen to include episodes that hadn't necessarily been included in previous abridgments. So for whatever reasons, Arthur Whaley didn't choose to translate the episodes that had thought-provoking and sometimes subversive takes on gender dynamics, um, especially the ones where the pilgrims fall pregnant and travel through the country of women. So those were a must for me. In terms of the humour, a lot of that is there in the original, in the repartee between characters and the situations they get themselves into. But sometimes I also tried playing with registers, sometimes juxtaposing a more formal tone with faster, informal reposts um in theory to comic effect um uh yeah we'll, we'll see what readers say about um how well that worked so but now that you finished this translation do you feel differently about the novel and the story and, and its characters um not 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 radically um i still love it um of course it was a great privilege to have had the opportunity get to know a novel like this from the inside out. So translation forces you to 
engage in the closest type of reading of a text. I still feel enormous admiration for the author or editor or compiler who originally put the novel together, that he or she sustained this fantastical, imaginative narrative and journey across so many chapters. Um, now, there's a lot in the novel about transformation. So characters are often um, uh, transforming into uh, all sorts of different things. And doing the translation actually changed me or my interests a lot. My training is in modern Chinese and my research up till now has been on very secular subjects. But working on the translation required me to take a deep dive into Chinese religion mythology and pre-modern fiction and I'm still reading widely in these subjects now which I absolutely love and uh, am spellbound by. So I, I have one final question about Journey to the West and it, it has a bit of preamble so um, let, me, <laughs> let, let me go through it. After after reading Journey of the West, I was thinking about all of the references to the novel that exist in today's popular culture, um, which are which are widespread and sometimes a bit tenuous. Um, you know, the anime Dragon Ball, perhaps the most well-known anime worldwide, is a riff on Journey to the West. The main character, Son Goku, is the Japanese version, the Japanese version of Sun Wukong. There's a Marvel character named Sun Wukong. Um, Video games have Monkey King costumes, if not Monkey King characters, if not just retellings of Journey to the West in video game form. Um, Netflix has a journey has a retelling of Journey to the West series that seems very silly. Um, so clearly has wide, wide appeal outside of China. Clearly been adopted by whole a whole range of um, modern popular culture, both in Asia and outside of Asia. I guess if I could ask you to speculate, why do you think that the Monkey King and by extension Journey to the West has had such strong appeal outside of China? That's a really great question. Um, uh, it's so fascinating that this book, which is about shape-shifting, has itself shape-shifted over uh, the past 500 years through so many different um, media and ad adaptations, uh, both within and beyond China. And as I was working on the, uh, on the translation, I was struck by um, an observation by uh, a, a Chinese internet commentator in 2015. Um, and they said, every Chinese person will fall in love with monkey. So each generation has its own monkey. Um, and I think you know, that comment was made re with regard to um, uh, the, the, the Chinese, the Sinophone cultural world, um, but it definitely holds for the appeal of this book or the, the appeal of the monkey character far beyond China. Um, why has this happened? I, I think the border crossing appeal of monkey is a big part of it. So, you know, you have a character who is a smart talking, omni-powerful, omni-talented mischief maker um, with his Achilles heel of arrogance and impatience. The novel and the stories within are also 
uh, a really enticingly realized fantasy universe. I think there's a kinship with Hollywood superhero movies, as you pointed out, um, in the way that the book is also obsessed with the technical sort of weaponized capabilities of gods, demons and monkey himself. The story also features the globe-trotting currency of Kung Fu, which has proved so popular far beyond East Asia. More broadly, the, the story, the fact of the, 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 the global success of this story fascinates me because Monkey King, Journey to the West, tells a story about China that is sharply different from the more negative authoritarian one um, that's garnering headlines in uh, the Anglophone press at the moment. So the novel instead emphasises humour, fantasy, imagination, uh, irreverence, and the individual chutzpah of the novel's hero, Monkey. So the international travels of Journey to the West and of Monkey are a wonderful example of the global appeal that Chinese culture can have, which is another reason that uh, this translation has felt like such a positive project to be involved with. So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Julia Lovell, responsible for the new translation of Journey to the West. One actual final question. Uh, Julia, what's next for you and where can people find your work? Well, um, they can um, find details about my work and my teaching on my faculty webpage. So I teach modern Chinese and global history at Birkbeck College University of London. So that's a good place to go. Um, uh, in terms of the next project, um, I'm really developing my interests in um, uh, the, 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 the culture of uh, ancient China and its uh, 20th century interpretations. Um, so I think uh, one question I'll be looking at is the history of Chinese archaeology, which again is just a wonderful opportunity uh, to study very closely um, all sorts of um, ideas about Chinese religion and spirituality in its deep past. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and you're listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Teping Chen, author of Land of Big Numbers. But before that, Julia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me.